University of Colorado. Greetings to you on the air listeners and happy holidays. As 2021 draws to a close, we're counting down our top five episodes of the year, your favorites and some of our own. It's always difficult to choose these since we're fortunate to speak with some of the most innovative and fascinating faculty and researchers at the University of Colorado. At number five is our episode about the research experience for community college students, otherwise known as RECs. This is a paid summer research internship program at CU Boulder that's open to all community college students in Colorado who are interested in STEM. This fall, we spoke with Alicia Christensen, Program Manager for Rex, and Anne Gold, Director of this year's Education Outreach Program. Alicia kicked off the episode by giving us insight on the breadth of the Rex program. We work with a variety of community colleges across Colorado, both in the Denver metro area and also rural Colorado to bring community college students to campus and connect them with research mentors here at CU, helping the students understand how to synthesize the research that they're doing into a scientific poster and also a formal conference presentation. They learn the skills required to communicate their science to a more general audience than those that are specific to their disciplines. Anne went on to discuss the impetus around the Rex program and when and how it got started. Leslie Smith, the current region at large, was one of the founding PIs of the Rex program. And so she ran the initial programs together with me in the very beginning. And then we brought in additional support, but she was instrumental in really institutionalizing the program within series and supporting the students and has been terrific in in really building also strong personal connections with students. I know she continues those and the students were actually, I think, part of her campaign for becoming a region. Where do these students go after completing the program? Alicia explained. Many actually end up attending CU Denver, especially those that live kind of in the Denver area. It's just a little bit more accessible for them. But we do have students that also attend CU and students will also go on to attend Metro, CSU. Those tend to be the major, I think, universities that they will attend. But, uh, oh, in Colorado School of Mines. For many families in the Denver Metro area, safe, adequate housing is a dream and limited access to transportation, a nightmare. Coming in at number four on our countdown is our episode about the housing and commuting crises featuring CU Denver's Carrie McCarowitz, Associate Professor of Urban and Regional Planning. Carrie discussed the work being done by a citywide partnership to solve these decades-old problems, starting with Denver's Valverde neighborhood. So redlining occurred in 30s and 40s and, and 50s and even beyond informally. People are still being discriminated against, either getting home loans or being allowed to, like, encouraged to buy a home in a community. So what it, what it was was literally red lines drawn on a map drawn by the Homeowners Loan Corporation at the federal level to identify risky places to invest. They were almost always exclusively communities of color. And the rule was just do not lend money here wow. um, or you will not be you know, backed by the federal deposited 
um, or other uh, other housing insurance programs. And so people who owned homes or wanted to buy a home in those communities couldn't get any extra money to do so. Meanwhile, other communities, people were getting 30-year mortgages with low interest rates and manageable monthly payments and building wealth and equity in their home because they owned it and were paying off a reasonable 30-year mortgage. Mm. All of these other communities, people could not get money to invest in the home that they owned or to actually buy it. Mm. And so we have generations of families that grew up in those neighborhoods. You know, that mortgage product has created so much wealth for people who were able to get it over the last numerous decades. If you didn't have it, then you didn't have a main vehicle of building wealth in the U.S. And so when you see redline communities today, you see, you know, greater health inequities. It was also became the areas in the 60s when transportation planners were saying we needed to continue building the U.S. highway interstate that Eisenhower designed in the 50s through the Highway Act. Where should we put that highway interstate? It was never supposed to go in cities. It was supposed to go around cities, but they started bringing them into cities. Carrie told us how the interstate further disrupted these communities and where the process failed the neighborhoods. Well, let's put it in this neighborhood where the home values aren't worth very much. That would be an easy place, not a lot of protest, and it'd be cheap for us to enact an eminent domain to buy up the properties. Mm -hmm. So now you see a place like Belverde is surrounded by U.S. Highway 6, Federal Boulevard mm -hmm. on its west. All of the pollution from the traffic, people who grow up in neighborhoods surrounded by high traffic areas like that often have asthma and other respiratory illnesses, maybe cancer because of that. But, you know, the stigmatization over the long term, like there's that that the decline in the housing stock then led to other issues mm -hmm. and other banks went lend for other things and no stores wanted to go into those communities. So there are no commercial properties in Valverde. Then you have to get over Alameda or Federal to get to other commercial or go on those two streets. How has the isolation and lack of transportation hurt these communities? So you have a longer distance to travel to meet your needs. So you may forgo the trip or spend a lot of time and money getting there. So it's just this spiral and ripple of effects that affects a community long term. What we want to do is reverse the poor health outcomes and the wealth inequities or the lack of wealth in that neighborhood and then use it as a model for other neighborhoods that have similar density, similar kind of surrounding infrastructure of these major roads, similar housing stock. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's happening in Valverde, like a lot of West Side neighborhoods, is gentrification starting. Because the home prices are are lower cost and people can people with higher incomes can pick them up if it's you know done by outside corporation that's building single family homes to rent or high end you know six flats that you have to have a very high income to afford, then you start to see displacement in the community. So we're looking at strategies that can help build wealth and improve health. The National Interagency Fire Center reported that as of September 21st, 44,647 wildfires had burned 5.6 million acres of land in the United States. At number three is our episode featuring CU Boulder professor Natasha Stavros, a data and fire scientist and director of the Earth Lab Analytics Hub. We discuss the effects of centuries of land mismanagement technology and fire mitigation, and what it will take to preserve the land and save structures, wildlife, and human lives. We emit fossil fuels, and fossil fuels create this greenhouse effect. And it's kind of like wearing a blanket. 
where, you know, you trap the heat and it starts to warm up. And the longer you wear that blanket, the warmer it gets. Well, that's kind of what we've been doing since the industrial era began. And so the climate has been warming and there's this lag effect where it's going to keep getting warmer. And when we say that it's getting warmer, we're talking about the general average temperature globally. So as the average temperature gets warmer, we actually see climate change, which is changing climate in different areas. So this kind of leads into fire because there's the way that we've kind of thought about it in fire is there's this spectrum where you have flammability limited systems. And that's something like the Pacific Northwest. You have a lot of fuel, but it's just not hot and dry. And so it doesn't really burn. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, fuel limited systems. And that's kind of like Nevada. It's hot, it's dry, but there's not really anything to burn. And what you need for fire actually is completely different depending on where you are. So in a fuel limited system, you actually have to have rain to carry fire because you have to grow the fuels right through grasses. And then in these flammability limit systems where you have a lot of fuels, you actually need prolonged drought. And so as we warm up the climate, what we see is a move from these flammability limited systems to more fuel limited. The problem is, is they're not actually fuel limited. They have fuel. Okay. That's one of the factors leading to really large fire events. CU Boulder's Earth Lab is involved in a collaboration that's finding ways to pull together research from across the world that can make an impact. At CU Boulder, the Earth Lab is uh, dedicated to using Earth observations to study global environmental change. And Earth observations come in many forms. They come through satellite imagery, drones. They also come through social media. And all of this is actually quite big data. So how do you work with that big data? And so within Earth Lab, there's the analytics hub. And that's really about the analytics and the, the data science behind working with that big data. And so that's really what my role is. As we, we enter into a world that's in so much flux, and we want to actually harness all of this data, how do we do it? How do we do it in a meaningful way? And another dimension of what we do is saying that there's no way that one person could do it all or, or pioneer all the ideas. And so we actually invest a lot of time and energy into thinking about open science, which is the philosophy that we are all better together if we are all empowered to contribute to the body of knowledge rather than a single person who has the vision right. and we all just follow that vision. Oh, I love that. What we experienced in 2020 is it's not the future, it's today. And it's going to keep happening. Thinking, oh, I don't have to think about it or I dodged the bullet this time. You know, luck only happens so often. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be prepared. Burnout among healthcare workers is at an all-time high. And while there's been progress in curbing the COVID pandemic, there seems to be no respite for those working in healthcare. At number two is our episode with Dr. Mark Moss from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, who studies burnout syndrome, post-traumatic stress disorder, and wellness among critical care health professionals, specifically ICU nurses. Part of the stress of a job comes from uncertainty. When you don't know what the next day is going to hold or how busy you're going to be. And that is indicative of working in a hospital or an intensive care unit at a baseline. There's not schedules for people coming into the intensive care unit. So there is this sense of uncertainty. Um, and then the pandemic magnified that. 
and there's even more uncertainty. I can tell you that when the vaccine was developed and we all started to get vaccinated 10 months ago, I think there was a lot of hope that the pandemic would end or slow down enough that it wasn't as overwhelming as it's been. However, I think the Delta variant and the lack of vaccination among people in our country has taken the hope away from healthcare professionals. We hoped that the pandemic was going to get better. Mark spoke to us about the toll the recent COVID variances have taken on healthcare workers. So the Delta variant and other factors have taken the hope away from us. There's a typical response to catastrophic events, whether they're tsunamis, earthquakes, or, or pandemics. And in the beginning, there's a great sense of heroicism. This is what we train to do. These patients need our help. This is exactly why I studied in medical school and stayed up at night during residency, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a common vision. People realized that we are here to help patients with COVID. So everyone bonded together behind that common vision. And there was a sense of community. And that's a normal response also, as I said, to earthquakes, et cetera. But then that starts to go away. And there's this prolonged period of what's called disillusionment. And it's fueled by a variety of different factors. Number one is people want to return to normal. So what can we do to support our healthcare workers? In the beginning of the pandemic, there were signs in our neighborhoods when I would take the dog for a walk that said, we love our healthcare professionals. And it was very comforting to see that. And there was the howl at eight o'clock at night. And you kind of felt like people were thinking of you and people would ask me when they would see me, how are you doing? How are things going? Thank you so much for what you're doing. It was just nice to know that people cared about you. But I understand that the rest of the world wants to get back to normal, um, but you kind of feel abandoned a little bit. Like everyone else is back to normal. You go to a Broncos game and there's 70,000 people there. And you watch events on TV and the world seems to have gotten back to normal. So that fuels this disillusionment. You feel like saying, hey, there's still 30 people in the intensive care unit that have COVID on ventilators. The pandemic's not over. We're still going to work and we're still um, caring for these patients. I don't look at burnout and the other psychological consequences of the work environment as being a mental health issue. I view it as an occupational health issue. Mm. And what I've said is if I'm a lung specialist, so if I saw somebody with a coal miner's pneumoconiosis, lung disease from working in a coal mine, you would never blame that person or say, wow, you're, you're, not, you're not strong enough to do the job. You'd say, this is unfortunately part of their job and we need to protect them better. I think we as a system first have to really work on destigmatizing this issue. It shouldn't be viewed as a mental health issue. It's really occurs in the best people. It's the ones that, and we've studied this, it's the ones that went into healthcare because they want to help people. That's a risk factor for developing burnout. So number one, destigmatize it. The second part of it is what we need to do as a system is make acknowledging talking about these issues part of our job. Um, other professions have figured this out, social workers. 
Um, they have tough jobs too. They talk to people about child abuse and sexual abuse. They have very difficult jobs. They realize that their most precious resource is themselves. And they incorporated training into their education to, to make sure they look out for themselves because they realize if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of my patients. So I think what people need to do is seek out resources. So what should people do? First of all, acknowledge that this is a problem. It's pervasive. We've shown that up to 80% of ICU nurses have symptoms of burnout and other forms of psychological distress. That's an epidemic. Yes. I think the other issue is it's not a one-size-fits-all. So you can't make somebody do mindfulness training. You can't make somebody go exercise. I think you have to individualize the therapy to each person. And I think the last thing I would say is that when we focus on individual interventions, it often can be perceived or initiated as blaming the individual. You're not good enough at the job, so you need to go do X. That's not correct. So we have to really be careful how we message this. Um, the other thing is that many of the programs that are rolled out are, are very passive. If you have a problem, then here's somebody you can go talk to. That's a big step for someone to admit they have a problem and all the concerns about confidentiality in the system to actually follow through with that. I think we have to flip it around and say, you have an appointment with someone on Thursday at one o'clock. If you don't want to go, that's fine. But this is part of your job. And we're going to take you out of your clinic responsibilities that afternoon. So it's not something added on to an already longer day. And we've made it to number one on our countdown, folks. Our top podcast of 2021 was an experience as much as an interview. Ben Quitek, Director of Innovation at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, immersed the CU on the Air team in innovation. He understands that innovation is critical to solving the problems our society faces. At UCCS, he's also the innovator of the world's first Bachelor of Innovation. What is innovation really, and where does it live? I think innovation is really the foundation for so many great things in society, and it's a way to solve many of the wicked problems that face us in this world. The Hollywood actor and legend William Shatner we invited to campus um, a couple of years ago, and the title of his speech was, Innovation is Our Best Hope. And I think that's precisely it. Like, it's the the thing, if you will, that allows us to look to the future and solve these problems so that we can have a better society and society can evolve and progress in ways that are beneficial for more people. So in terms of the ingredients or what you need for that innovation culture to develop, I mean, I think I would point to a few things. One is a good country or location, geographic location to start with. And in our case, the United States is one of the best places you could be in the world for innovation. We have a culture of it. I think that throughout generations, there's been a view that we can do things different here, that we're frontier people and we're willing to push the boundaries of, you know, previous norms. So by pushing those boundaries that you realize that some of the boundaries you put in are artificial, like they're your own boundaries. And when you break through those, you realize that there's a lot more out there and a lot more is possible. So I think, again, the place would be first. Second, I think, is an educated population and a university. 
Um, universities, by their very nature, have a lot of subject matter experts and researchers and professors, and they bring their expertise and research to a place. And hopefully that work then leads to invention and startups and sort of a culture of wanting to try new things and make improvements for society. And then I think the third ingredient would be um, capital. And in terms of angel investors and in terms of venture capital, um, that's really the fuel that's added to the spark that comes out of the universities often and transforms a startup idea into a startup company and hopefully a funded company that then goes on to make a huge difference. The program here at UCCS is unique in that it's still relatively young. It combines multiple majors across campus. So when I teach an introduction to entrepreneurship class on campus, a freshman level class, there will be 50 students in the class, but some will be computer science majors, some will be business marketing majors, some will be early childhood education majors, some will be museum studies or art majors. And people might think, well, that's a kind of a chaotic, motley crew. Like, how does that work? And my answer would be brilliantly, mm -hmm. because the more diversity you have of thought and background and field and expertise, the more ideas that come out that are unexpected. Mm -hmm. Those ideas where you're like, wow, that's more breakthrough than I would have imagined if we just had two computer science people together or two marketing people together. Because we all come at it from different angles, that allows that intersectional innovation um, that really the, the archetype for it is the Renaissance in Italy. You had the de' Medici family funding all of these smart people from various fields. And how can we foster innovation in our lives and into the future? Ben has some ideas. Innovation isn't just for people who want to be entrepreneurs. To me, innovation is a broader concept, almost an umbrella concept, and entrepreneurship falls under it. So one way to be innovative is to be entrepreneurial. But I think you can be innovative in almost any subject or discipline. And I think we should encourage, um, you know, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our family to never lose sight of the fact that, A, you can be innovative and you can learn about innovation to be a better innovator. And when you do that, it's helpful on almost every level because you then see problems in a different light. Um, you see more opportunities than you've probably ever seen. And I think you also give people and organizations a little bit more grace because you realize the obstacles they have to face. Um, you're more empathetic, basically, to people when you look at the world through an innovative lens. Thanks for joining us for our countdown of the top five See You on the Air episodes of 2021. And thanks for following the See You on the Air podcast, which showcases our amazing University of Colorado faculty and researchers who are helping to transform lives in Colorado and far beyond. What are your favorite episodes? Let us know in the podcast comments. And be sure to check back with See You on the Air on December 28th, when we'll highlight an impressive partnership between the University of Colorado Boulder and Fort Lewis College in Durango. See You on the Air is hosted by Emily Davies, produced by Kathy Buton, and recorded and engineered by me, John Arnold. Email us your questions and suggestions at ontheair at cu.edu. We'll see you on the air next time. University of Colorado.